Jay Blessed is a transparent look into the life and mind of a Caribbean woman having human experiences. Get into my mind as I share my most vulnerable thoughts and honest experiences. I'll take you on a roller coaster of emotions as you get to know someone who might share similar experiences with you. Some might make you speechless, you'll definitely laugh. Others might make you angry and some might even make you cry. But my very real, very raw, very relatable weekly podcast will always keep you coming back for more. Join me as I talk to myself, talk to you, and even talk to some special friends in my head. (laughs) In my head is an introspective look from a voyeuristic point of view. For a list of all my social channels and how you can connect with me, please view this episode's summary. To join in on the conversation, use the hashtag HeadWithJB. That's H-E-A-D-W-I-T-H-J-B. And follow me on Instagram at RealJBlessed and Twitter at JBlessed. Let's get in on the conversation together. Don't forget to log on to my official website, JBlessed.com. A human experience from a Caribbean perspective. Episode 41, a discussion on health equity with Dr. Aletha Maybank. In my head. Hey fam, hey fam, hey fam. We are in June 2020. Wow. I am still not getting used to recording in weird spaces of my home. I miss the studio so much. <laughs> I miss I miss being in the booth. I miss G. I miss Sunny. I actually really, really miss you know, my my guest, seeing my guests, hugging my guests, just being in the same space, you know. It's so much easier to record an episode when you can see your guest, feel their energy, feel their vibe, and you can anticipate when they're going to speak or see them about to speak or wrapping up their thought. It's kind of really hard to do that over the phone. So I've, um, I've been managing, but you know what? I'm grateful. We're able to successfully um, record and complete and edit and and publish to, to the world amazing content right here from my home. So big up to myself. <laughs> this is June, yes, and June is all about Caribbean American Heritage Month. And I'm kicking off my Caribbean American Heritage Month series with Dr. Maybank. Here's a bit of history on Caribbean American Heritage Month. Uh, It started with an official campaign back in 2004 upon the tabling of a bill in the U.S. Congress by Congresswoman Barbara Lee with language provided by the Institute of Caribbean Studies founder and president, Dr. Claire Nelson. 
ICS worked with the Office of Congresswoman Barbara Lee to galvanize support for the bill from organizations across the country. The bill was reintroduced and passed in the House in June 2005 and the Senate in February 2006. June has been designated as National Caribbean American Heritage Month by presidential proclamation in recognition of the extraordinary contributions of Caribbean Americans to the American society. Big up yourself, Caribbean people. We are the salt of the earth. We are so powerful. We are so influential. We lick up, but we tell her. You understand? So big up all my Caribbean people. And kicking off our In My Head Caribbean American Heritage Month series is the amazing, the incomparable Dr. Aletha Maybank. In my Dr. Aletha Maybank, MPH, is the vice president and first-ever chief health equity officer at the American Medical Association. Prior to her role at AMA, Dr. Maybank was an associate commissioner and later a deputy commissioner at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. There, she founded and launched the department's Center for the Health Equity, a new division geared towards strengthening and amplifying the department's work in ending health inequities. Prior to this role, she was an assistant commissioner in the New York City Health Department over the Brooklyn District Public Health Office from April 2009 through 2014. Here, her bureau set a precedence and created a template for community-driven neighborhood planning. Dr. Maybank also successfully launched the Office of Minority Health as its founding director in the Suffolk County Department of Health Services in New York from 2006 through 2009. She also teaches medical and public health students on topics related to health inequities, public health leadership and management, physician advocacy, and community organizing in health. Currently, Dr. Maybank serves as president of the Empire State Medical Association, the New York State affiliate of the National Medical Association. In 2012, she co-founded We Are Duck McStuffins, a movement created by African-American female physicians who were inspired by the Disney junior character, Duck McStuffins. Dr. Maybank holds a BA from John Hopkins University, an MD from Temple University School of Medicine, and an MPH from Columbia University Millman School of Public Health. She is a pediatrician board certified in preventative medicine and public health. In my head. In my head, fam, Jay Birds, help me welcome to the podcast Dr. Maybank. Hey, Dr. Maybank. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? How's everything going? Everything is well. I know you don't want to be on this call this morning. <laughs> we both tired. <laughs> yeah, so, definitely a little feeling this morning for sure. So I just want to say, you know, we saw you on Oprah Talks COVID-19 on Apple TV, and now you're on In My Head with Jay Bloss. Can I tell you how psyched I am? Like, I feel so special. <laughs> Special thanks to Christina and Sonia Daly for making this happen. And I want to start off by saying happy one-year anniversary as AMA's first ever Chief Health Equity Officer and Vice President. Thank you. It went by very quickly. It made it go by even extremely more quickly. So, yeah. I know it's because you're doing a lot of excellent and tireless work in our communities. And... Before we continue, this this podcast is mental health focused, and I normally ask 
every guest this question when we start. How are you really, really feeling today? Well, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the call, I'm feeling a, a physical tiredness for sure. Um, and then I think there is just, and I, and I know many folks are experiencing this um, for many different reasons, but just kind of a, an exhaustion as it relates to doing this work um, in the healthcare space. Uh, and I'm not even a frontline worker, so frontline workers, I'm not even comparing myself to what they're experiencing. Um, but being in a healthcare organization, clearly there's a lot that we have to do and need to do as the American Medical Association representing 210,000 physicians across this country, um, and probably more, you know, our advocacy is just for those 200,000 physicians, but really the million physicians overall. and making sure, you know, that we are talking to the highest levels of government, um, that folks have what they have from not just the programmatic but a kind of policy um, aspect and, and folks are guaranteed protection um, as they are working to fight uh, COVID. And we know everybody has heard of all the many gaps that relates to, you know, physical protection and, and mental health protection at that um, at this time. So that's one part of the exhaustion. The other part is um, being, you know, a woman of color, a black woman um, in organizations, you know, you know, fighting this constant fight of justice uh, and, and the challenges of being able to name racism as fundamental causes of why these health equities exist, these differences in health that have been so highlighted um, during COVID, um, challenging you know, other folks' mental models about how they come to this work and understand what is happening in communities of color and getting folks to, you know, change their own narratives and not blame black people or people, any marginalized group, actually, for what is happening um, to them right now at this time. So that's the second exhaustion. And then there's a third exhaustion that I think um, many in our black communities are experiencing right now. And that's, you know, George Lloyd um, you know, and several of the other folks who have also um, experienced um, death and early death, two early deaths uh, at the hands of law enforcement. Uh, and, you know, the, the dots are all, for me, very much connected. You know, they're not siloed or separated um, instances, it, it all, at the end of the day, you know, demonstrates just the amount of harm that is continually placed on the minds and the hearts and the bodies of black folk um, since the time we were brought to this country and enslaved. And, you know, it's just, it's just changed over time, but at some level it really hasn't. And it all demonstrates the lack of value that has been assigned to us by our systems and structures. Um, and it plays out in hearts and minds of other folks. Uh, and people will die early. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm a physician, I'm in the health community, and this is, this is absolutely an issue that the health community has to be aware of and pay attention to and advocate and raise their voice in. And change. people are dying early. And be part of that change. So, Dr. Maybank, you know, thank you for bringing up George Floyd in Minneapolis. That was, I mean, I saw the video. 
And to be honest, this morning, I am still, you know, in emotional distress. Um, from a medical point of view, can you explain the correlation between media consumption of these kinds of images and videos and the mental health of minorities? Uh, well, I mean, I think we already know the challenge of, and I'm not, let me say this in a way, you know, social media has absolutely been helpful. I think in terms of connecting people, organizing people, I, I even think during this time of COVID, social media has, has been helpful. The, the ability to connect when you actually can't do it in person um, is critical for our mental health. And when we start to see, you know, executions, murders of people over and over again, you know, at first, to some level, to become desensitized, I don't, I don't, I don't fully, you know, agree with that. I think it just causes further trauma and harm for us, uh, and we internalize that, and it causes our body to, to weather uh, right. and all of that chronic stress and watching it over and over and over again. And another contributor to why we're more likely to die earlier than others. Um, so I think it is it is very dangerous to see a video of you know what we kind of our modern day lynching of an individual over and over again. You know I heard it. I was, I was actually in my car driving already this morning. I had to go somewhere, and the radio station playing it. And I'm like, why are they playing this? Right. You know, um, and you know so. It's definitely not healthy. So let's reverse a bit. Um, we are celebrating Caribbean American Heritage Month, and um, you are a proud Antiguan repin <laughs> physician. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit more about your Caribbean background? Um, and seriously, what, was there pressure to be an overachiever in your in your Caribbean based household? Like. I, because I watched your resume and I'm like, geez, what has she not done? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so in terms of my antique background, you know, I was, I was born here in this country, but I go back, you know, pretty often from the time I was little. Uh, and I actually am a citizen. I have my passport and, you know, your mother's born. If your mother's born there, you can gain citizenship. So um, I am also a, a citizen of Antigua. Um, and... You know, I value those roots. One, I think it's just an amazing opportunity to not be fully from this country, per se. Um, not that I don't value being an American citizen, but just the ability to step outside of um, this country and see what life is like for other people um, and to be connected to that life and to value it um, definitely grounds me um, in a way that I think is really helpful as I view, you know, the world and kind of what's happening in this country. Um, so I feel like I have a, I feel like I have a global presence and not just a national presence and it inspires you know, definitely the work that I do. But I also really value my Caribbean roots of just who people are, you know, and the value of education, of course, that many of us know that happens in, in the Caribbean, especially in, in the country of Antigua. I know it happens in other places, but just I know Antigua. Um, and, you know, the, the prioritization of, of ex, ex education within the family. And then also, like, the, the sacrifice. You know, like, my, my family was not a well-to-do family in Antigua. Um, you know, they were pretty poor um, and made a lot of sacrifices, you know, for me to get to where I am. Like, it's not, it's not a dirt, what my mom did, definitely. But just thinking about what her mother did and her 
mother's aunt did in order for her to get to where she was able to get. So, you know, I, I really think about that lineage and as um, much pride uh, and, and kind of much responsibility at the same time, especially at this point in my life. So, you know, when I ask the question about was I raised to be an overachiever, I don't know about that part, but I definitely was raised to prioritize education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and it comes from a place of um, opportunity and, and believing that, or a belief that, you know, they as a people and my family, they deserve to have more than what they have. Right. So, um, and then they believe that for their children as well. So I feel it's that drive that has pushed, you know, my mother to give me whatever messages she gave me over time, all of the disciplines, you know, that she has passed down. Um, I've clearly embraced it. and not always willingly, that's for sure, but I've definitely adopted it. Um, and I feel like that's why, what I, why, why I'm and where I am. So you chose a path of medicine and public service, and I want to know, what was your experience like as a black woman navigating medical school to a life of public service? Yeah, um, I think my context of blackness and anti-blackness really was formed more so in my younger years because of where I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania and Harrisburg and uh, in the suburbs and being one of the only black children within the neighborhood and schools and kind of all the challenges that that has brought, which other children have experienced when you're the only, whatever the only is. Um, And having to experience, um, you know, teachers and principals have doubts in who I could be and where I would end up being. Um, and it would play out in very direct ways of preventing me to take certain classes or trying to prevent me to take certain classes, making my mom sign, you know, papers that if I failed it wasn't your fault, you know, things like that. And so, you know, I witnessed a lot of advocacy, thankfully, from my mother. And I think a lot of what I do is really from witnessing her commitment to justice for her own daughter um, and her courage to speak up to people who definitely didn't value her and there could have been, you know, repercussions for her speaking up in many different ways. So when I transitioned into, I've always wanted to be a doctor from the time I was four, so that that was always there. But how I doctor um, definitely is very much informed um, by that experience growing up and just understanding that system structures the people. If they don't see value in you, if they don't want you to be in a certain place, they will work hard, especially if they're more in quotes, powerful than you are in terms of finances and organizational structure. They'll work hard to prevent you from moving forward, and and I and I got that. Mm-hmm. I understood it um, from that experience. So as I got older, and I went through med school, um, you know, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I, I definitely like kids and valued kids, um, but I still didn't really value the healthcare system or the medical system. Um, they didn't really pay attention to our lives, you know. They, you're like, doctors don't have to worry about all those other things. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. You can't really fully care for somebody if you don't understand how they're coming to you. So right. that's kind of been my evolution of how I've gotten into this space of, like, social justice. 
So let's take it from there. According to WHO, uh, World Health Organization, health equity is the absence of avoidable, unfair, or remediable differences among groups of people, whether those groups are defined socially, economically, demographically, or geographically, or by any other means of stratification. Health equity or equity in health implies that ideally everyone should have a fair opportunity to attain their full health potential and that no one should be disadvantaged from achieving this potential. Why was it so important for you later on to create the Center for Health Equity and also the Office of Minority Health? Well, those opportunities, you know, it came to me. It's like, what is this thing? I don't know what to say. It's like when you're prepared for whenever something comes your direction or in the timing. Um, but the Office of Minority Health, which is the first role that I took on uh, as its founding director, as the health commissioner that was there, there was kind of a movement that was happening in the country of Office of, of, Office of Minority Health kind of popping up in different places in different states mostly, and then they were starting to develop some local offices. So he was there. I was in residency doing some projects or work on understanding cultural attitudes. They heard about the work, and they asked if I wanted to start this office of minority health. So that's how I transitioned to, into that space. Um, I felt it was important. You know, it's a, it's a good question. Why did I feel it was important, and why I moved into it beyond just opportunity presenting itself? I, you know, I think... It was, um, I don't know, it was probably some. it was new, uh, and, and nobody else had done it, and I could be creative with it. Um, and I, I feel like I've always had a really strong gut, but I feel my gut told me that this was the right direction to go, and there were many folks that were very supportive of me going that direction, even though I wasn't even fully finished with residency yet, so figuring out how to do both at the same time. So, you know, it's a mix of all of those pieces you know, timing and support and readiness uh, and curiosity uh, that caused me to step that space. And then, you know, I, I think after that, you know, then I started to build a skill set and an awareness that was not just local, but also national. And I and one of my strengths, definitely, I know, is the ability to network and build relationships and connections with people. And that's just due to the part of just courage to reach out or just, I don't know, courage, but just reaching out to folks. If there's something that I'm interested in, I have no problem, or a person I'm interested in, I really have no problem reaching out and, and trying to connect with them to get the information that may be useful. Um, and then the other opportunities in terms of starting a Center for Health Equity in New York City, um, you know, again, I think, you know, a mix of timing, being in the right place, and, you know, new commissioner came on board, Dr. Mary Bassett, she wanted to make sure that she followed through on her own personal commitment to more directly address health equity and not let it kind of be something in the background. And she had brought me into the health department before she became commissioner. So, you know, it, it, you know, the ask was there. By then I had built up, um, you know, some knowledge, awareness about just the space and field of health equity. Uh, so there was confidence to hire me there. And then, you know, with all that, I didn't have to build over time. And so coming to the AMA, you know, there's it's a national opportunity. Um, I didn't think about it. I didn't just, it wasn't an, an easy kind of jump. It came up kind of unexpectedly. But it also, it, it, you know, AMA has a long-standing history of 
excluding black physicians from the organization up until the 1960s. Wow. Um, until civil rights was passed. And then they issued an apology in 2008. So, you know, this, my role was definitely going to be um, a really critical role, uh, but also I knew it was going to be a challenging role. But I saw the opportunity. I felt that leadership was fully on board. Membership was definitely on board. They asked for this position, so that was what was great, and start the center. So that's, that's the path. So presently we're in a COVID-19 you know, season globally, and you've been doing a lot of press. You've been doing a lot of work right now with AMA in regards to COVID-19 and health equity. I read an article in The Atlantic by Adam Sower titled, Coronavirus Was an Emergency Until Trump Found Out Who Was Dying. Do you agree with that statement? I think when we look at corona and we look at who is dying, um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, it definitely exposed inequities in a way that probably no other um, epidemic has or disaster has in this country. Um, And it's really hard to turn away from. But it's also... The reality is, is that, again, when you ask the question, why are certain communities dying more than others? And you dig deeper, you know, first you'll hear underlying conditions, but that's just not deep enough and enough. Um, And you'll hear then, you know, definitely the conditions of which people live. Okay, that's true, but live in what way, you know, overcrowding and all that. But why are people... Why are people of color and black people in overcrowded places? You know, who made those decisions? What were the policies that forced people into these areas? And what are the policies that forced people to have to have work what they call essential or expendable jobs, really? Um, right. And so I think it, it is of a question to ask um, why, why the change in position, you know? Um, and I think, you know, history tells us, you know, that a lot of what is done in this country is absolutely rooted in self-interest and and policies and values are, or let me put it this way, values are are placed in the policy um, as a result of self-interest. In your New York Times op-ed dated April 7, 2020, you wrote that, open quote, we health professionals fear that COVID-19 will further widen existing health gaps. That's why my organization, the AMA, is calling on laboratories, health institutions, state and local health departments, and the Department of Health and Human Services to standardize, collect, and publish race and ethnicity data so that we can begin to prioritize equity and effectively manage this pandemic. Dr. Maybank, it's, it's almost two months since you wrote that. Has AMA been receiving this specific data? So AMA doesn't receive the data itself, but what has happened across the country, it was more so, so that local health departments, state health departments, the Centers for Disease Control, one, they weren't revealing the data, they weren't sharing the data. Um, we didn't see it, we had no idea what was happening. So they have started to share the data um, there was a lot of pressure that was put on, not only from the AMA, but from many folks across the country. However, um, we are very clear that the, the data are very incomplete. 
um, for reasons of, you know, at, at the point of, like, what were the, the structures for people collecting data in the first place? And we know for race and ethnicity, it just isn't well standardized across the country. So, you know, some people don't even collect it well. Um, and for certain um, racially marginalized groups, such as Native American, um, that data is not even really well collected. So you'll see total gaps of, uh, and of missing data. The other part is that, you know, um, the forms were not being filled out to their completeness. So with the testing that's happening across the country, there is no guarantee that whomever is filling out the form within the labs or the doctor's office are actually filling out the race and ethnicity part. And from somebody who's I've taken two tests now, um, that I didn't get asked once about what my race and ethnicity was. So, no, there are gaps just in the immediate crisis as well in, in addition to the structure. And then we know there are gaps in data collection because folks are not getting tested in general across the country still. We're still we're, it's getting better, but it's still not optimal. And then for communities of color, black people, you know, we know that the, the, the situations at which people have been turned away, um, they're fearful of going into hospitals and going for testing. Um, but they've also been denied testing as well. So it, what I would say is we have seen, and this is on our website, you know, more states presenting the data um, for race and ethnicity for sure. But there have also been, you know, recent studies within the last week or two just showing the, the percentage of missing data still being anywhere from 20 to, to 60%. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to go in that area. Um, and we've done some work on the federal level um, to get Congress to consider legislation um, as well as funding um, to better build and support an infrastructure um, for better testing. There is a correlation between medical mistrust and mortality within the African-American community. As a minority doctor, what do you say to people of color who are afraid of going to the doctor, are afraid of getting tested, and are afraid of future vaccines? Yeah. Um, well, I say I acknowledge that fear um, and understand that that fear is rooted in a historical context and in history, but it's also rooted in a probably very personal and immediate um, experience and context. You know, these these experiences of, you know, what I would say kind of violence, discrimination, bias are not of the past. You know, we see that in the news, especially now, you know, and so it's, it's such an unfair expectation, I think, for, for folks or placed upon folks to think that they're just going to easily, you know, go to a system that has traumatized them. And, and committed violence towards them for generations, you know? And so I acknowledge that that, that exists and that's real. Then mm-hmm. um, I also encourage people um, by giving them information, right? And by giving them, you know, what are the facts that I do know um, about, you know, a, a vaccine, or we don't know anything about COVID vaccine, but other vaccines. Um, and other, you know, things that we do know about testing and the importance of it. I think a lot, there's so much misinformation out there still to this day. Um, I got a text this morning about, you know, something that was just bizarre. And I was like, what, from a, from a friend of mine? And I was just like, okay, let me 
let me, I'm not going to, you know, say to them that they're crazy. Let me, let me address it and kind of <laughs> provide the facts and the, and the information, right? Um, and, and what I know to be truth at this point in time. So I think that's an important part of encouraging, you know, my family. It's not because it, my family's part of that, right? Right. My family, uh, friends, and, and other people, um, they need this factual information and just the space um, to ask questions, you know. So, you know, I that's, and that's just their contact with me. But going to a healthcare space and you don't know anyone, it's just not as easy. Um, right. But, you know, I decided encourage and teach the advocacy skills in terms of, you know, you know, just ask questions. You're allowed it's your right, right to ask a question. Um, you know, if you are in front of a doctor's office, it's your right to go somewhere else. Somebody has denied you care. Um, but we know even in light of those situations, you know, since COVID has shown it, where there are stories that folks went to four different hospitals and they were still turned away. Right. Um, and they ended up passing. So it's, 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 it's real, you know, and it's and it's challenging, and um, you know we have a lot of responsibility in terms of an accountability um, that we need to kind of step up to as healthcare organizations and institutions and people who work in them. Even if we feel we were not a part of the historical context, we still are in the, we still are a part of the system that perpetuates the harm. And we need to kind of, we need to acknowledge that and we need to do something about it. And I know this all ties into, you know, your mission to dismantle structural inequities and, you know, medical biases. As a board certified pediatrician, I have to ask with many children experiencing their first global disaster and many even being born into this new normal how can we safeguard our children's physical and mental health? I think during this time, I think it's really important to talk to our children. Um, again, to what I said before, allow them the space to ask questions. Um, and as parents and or families, and aunties, bad mommies, whichever we are, um, to find out the factual information ourselves as well. Um, you know, there, I think there are trusted websites now and links to other trusted websites. You know, for I definitely, you know, I've done work with Moms Rising. They have a lot of good information on for children. The American Academy of Pediatrics um, have resources for parents as well. Um, the CDC has some resources for parents as well. So I, you know, those are some, some, some trusted resources for black communities, as in, you know, I think is a trusted resource, as in, um, magazine and brand. Go to these sites, websites, to find out factual information so that they have, so when their children ask them questions, no matter what age they are, and of course you have to give information that's age appropriate, but I think it's a way of protecting children. It's a way of addressing their curiosity, their concerns, and their fears because they're witnessing and they're hearing TV every single day. And in black communities, the reality is that they're exposed to that. Right. Um, because the numbers are so high. So we have to uh, just do a better job, and, step, and I'm sure many parents are, of talking to their children. And, and the challenge is that, again, you know, black parents are more likely to be in jobs of which are putting them at their stuff at risk. 
Right. So, you know, when they come home, they have to figure out how to protect themselves as well as, as their children um, because they have to go to work. Um, and now where businesses are opening up across the country, it's even, you know, it's, it's even more so, again, not essential, but it ends up with no poke folks in terms of having to go to these jobs and some of these jobs not even having protective gear. Right. Um, so all of that, you know, it's... It, the reality is, is that we have to recognize that children absorb all of it. Uh, and so we, we just have to be present for kids in ways that we haven't um, before. What are your thoughts on a COVID-19 vaccine for children? Especially what do you say to parents who are wary of such a vaccine? Again, understanding and uh, validating concern um, because oftentimes they're rooted in something actually very valid. Making sure that there's factual information uh, for when the vaccine does come out uh, and, and when it is ready. Uh, but I, I do believe it is going to be a challenge for sure. Right. Um, and we as healthcare providers are going to have to figure out how best to message, how best to understand what those fears are in real and very specific ways um, so that we can help support parents and families, um, you know, giving a vaccine when we have a vaccine that does work and has been tested and studied and all the things that need to happen for a vaccine to, to come out. Um, I, and that is critical. When a vaccine does become available, will you be taking it? Will I be taking a vaccine? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I take all my vaccines, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything different. With COVID-19 being our new reality and the advent of a whole new normal, what are the present and long-term effects that you see happening in minority communities? You know, that's such a good question. You know, I think, one, we're, we're going to be very challenged in this space of, you know, being, some people having to be home, some people not being able to be home, kids being out of school. Um, I think, you know, if we're going to be in a space where we already are anxious, um, but I think that anxiety and stress has the opportunity to even amplify more um, in our whatever we're working towards um, and where our society is headed. Uh, and I think for communities of color, you know, I think we're going to have to really find ways to help support one another um, more during this time. And I think a reliance on the assets and the strengths that we already have in our communities, the spiritual strengths, the um, healing strengths that we've passed down from generations. Um, and, and I mean that more of in a spiritual healing sense. Uh, I think we, we need, we're going to have to rely on those those ways of being that we've relied on for so long. Um, we're a community that survived um, and has survived tremendous amount of violence over time and still to this day. Uh, and I think it's going to also call upon us in our own community who are spaces like where I am to really um, you know, advocate even more so, also be more collective figure out and find our collective power even more so. And it's happening. This isn't not happening. Um, you know, we're different groups and different 
people, leaders of our communities, you know, the Poor People's Campaign led by Barbara, you know, that are in the forefront and, and now pulling together not just like silo groups of people. So it's not just faith leaders, but it's faith leaders and doctors coming together and lawyers coming together to help address more of the structural issues and the policy level issues and advocate um, to help give space to all those who don't have the ability and time and opportunity to, to do that kind of advocacy because they're working either on the front lines or, you know, they have to be home for whatever reasons in our community. So, you know, for us, I think we're finding our way and our commitment back to um, our own value um, and our own blackness and, and demanding um, that we have the opportunity and the power, conditions, and resources to achieve optimal health. I feel that that has to happen. Um, and we can't fully rely on, you know, others to do that um, during this time and as we move forward. I think that that is going to become even more real. Uh, I'm inspired by the younger generations that are especially in med school and the younger docs that are coming up, you know, they're talking social justice. They're speaking language that the older generation doesn't even understand. And they also understand each other's kind of causes. So when I say that, um, black students are understanding the Native American experience, they're understanding the Latinx experience, and they know how to come together um, in ways that are meaningful, as well as still, you know, making sure that they're calling um, alarm and, and attention to what their own experiences in their communities. So those are the things that I think are, are really um, hopeful and helpful um, for our communities as we move forward. Dr. Maybank, wow. Wow, this has been an amazing, amazing interview. We're getting ready to wrap up. I, I want to know, with the constant demands of your work in your own personal life, how do you manage and protect your mental health? Yeah, that's, always, that's a constant question, you know, and, uh, and I think a challenge for myself, my friends, and my position as well, or, you know, and it's not just my position. I mean, I, honestly, again, you know, I think the parent who has to go out to work has a much tougher time than I do. Um, at, you know, during this time and then have to come home and figure out how their kids are being educated and what to do if they don't have access to internet. Like, that's, that's harder right. than my experience. So, you know, I reflect on that, right, to say things for me could be worse. Number well, That's number one. Number two, I do connect with, you know, my family and friends um, pretty often. You know, we have our group family chat and my brother and sister, we have our kind of bi-weekly chat, you know. So all of those things, touching base, being able to express and share, you know, what I'm experiencing I think is really important um, and having that support. And then I will say I haven't been as great. It's getting warmer, so I think it will get easier um, to kind of step outside and go for a walk because I'm, I'm, I think very like you to say, I prefer <laughs> warmth than I prefer chilliness. Right. So I, I like chilly. So now that it's getting warmer, the sun's out more. The sun feels amazing. I was in the park this weekend with one of my friends, and we just laid in Fort Greene Park um, and just laid there, you know, because it just felt so amazing. So those things are important um, to, for me to kind of keep my mental health. In my.
all right, Dr. Maybank, we're now going to have you leave in my head without doing some rapid fire questions, okay? All right, so we're about to test. If it's, if it's anything related to being a West Indian, I will fail this. I'm so nervous. <laughs> I'm so nervous. I want to see how badly you're going to fail at this, though. You're going to embarrass me now. It's all good. Somebody told me the other day. I don't, just, I don't think of you as a Caribbean person or a West Indian person. I said, I have a passport, so you can't do nothing. <laughs> That's your Trump card? Your passport? <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> but it's not, it's not a passport. Let's see if we're going to have to revoke your Caribbean passport. I just got, I just got five simple <laughs> questions. <laughs> so, bouncy killer or beanie man? Uh, um, Alright. Dan Saul or Soka? Damn. Okay, well, uh, we might keep have you keep your passport if you have to think. <laughs> Go ahead. No, but you still gotta give us one. Dan Saul or Soka? Oh, I gotta do it? I gotta answer? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say dance hall because that's what I grew up with during college. Like, that's kind of, you know, what I remember. But Soka is what connects me back to Antigua. So, I'm going to say it. I can't, I can't either or like. I'm an ant girl. I'm an ant. I'm more complex than that. But go ahead. Jerk chicken or curry chicken? I'm a curry chicken. Jerk chicken is Jamaican. I'm Antigua. A breakfast party or a night fit? I know you're saying because I said it's what, what, um, I love my, my coffee in the morning and my porridge. Sorry. Sensible shoes or stilettos? Ooh. You got to think hard about this well, one? No. I'm just saying, like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an either or person. So I love my flip-flops. And I'm walking around, you know, in, in Antigua, but if I'm going out and I need to look sexy and pretty, I'm going to put on my Go ahead, Dr. Maybank. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for making us laugh now, uh-huh. but but also giving us a wealth of information, giving us things to think about. I want to thank you, Dr. Maybank, for the work that you're doing in our communities to dismantle structural inequities. Is there anyone you want to shout out before you go? Um, just all the people who've been working and all the, the frontline workers, not just in the hospitals, but everywhere throughout the communities. Uh, shout out to them. Yeah. See you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Maybank. We applaud you. We appreciate you. Yet again, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us right here on In My Head with Jay Blessed. In My Head. Thank you so much, Dr. Maybank. Oh, man. Listen, we're trying to do, we're trying to, you know, do the best we can with what we have. I ain't got my studio, but hopefully, hopefully you got a, a wealth of information and, and you, you got to learn a lot more about an amazing Caribbean American making a powerful impact nationally and around the globe. 
helping others, especially underserved communities, especially black and brown communities. Thank you so much. For a list of resources mentioned in this episode, please visit this episode's show notes. It's so powerful to see representation like Dr. Maybank playing important national roles. It's also very important for our children to see these examples as attainable options in their future career path. Much love goes out to everyone from Antigua and Bermuda. As soon as travel restrictions have lifted and it is safe to hop on a plane, I will be there. like share leave a five star rating and 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 you know leave a leave a positive comment no you know you could just write a little one line and say oh my gosh this is my favorite caribbean podcast i love it <laughs> don't forget to leave a positive comment on apple podcast share 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 this episode and others as well i am committed to sharing our colorful and powerful stories our brilliance our vibrancy and our resilience through thoughtful content right here on head with jb thank you so much fam thank you so much thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of in my head see you next week